Welcome to another Somery Smith Pearson podcast, brought to you exclusively by that indispensable journal, The Book Collector. Today, John Somery Smith's essay is entitled Creating a Library and tells of his experiences buying ready-made libraries for smart and wealthy Anglo-American clients of Haywood Hill. It was published in the winter issue of The Book Collector in 2011. The reader is the actor and bookman Neil Pearson. Creating a Library Five months ago, I was asked to create a reference library for a family who were moving into a Hampshire country house. This was not to be limited to standard leather-bound sets, and there was no time limit given. Working out such a scheme was familiar to me, but each previous commission had demanded a different menu, depending on the client's knowledge and or taste, their budget, and the relative availability of the books they wanted. A similar commission had come in about 1972 from a business colleague of the then owner of Haywood Hill. He was not yet 30, but was already making a great deal of money in London property. His suggested budget was £20,000, and, rightly or wrongly, I persuaded him to postpone his grand plan until he knew what he really wanted on his shelves. In the short term, it would give a boost to the shop's turnover, but he might be dissatisfied after a couple of years and want to return the whole collection to us. Eighteen years later, he had just negotiated the lease of the first floor of 100 Eaton Square, where there was a room of a perfect size to make a library study. But we will deal with that in chronological order. I'd actually filled the greater part of a library room in 1971 for Sir Kenneth Keith, the future Lord Keith of Castleacre, at the Norfolk house he had enlarged during his second marriage. His wife was American and had been universally known as Slim. She had smart New York taste and no compunction about spending the large sums that he was then earning as a prominent city banker. She had employed Colfax and Fowler as her decorator, and when the marriage ended, she stripped her lavishly furnished bedroom and dressing room, plus the shelves of her library. Colfax had now been summoned to put the three rooms back in order, and one of their partners, Tom Parr, invited me to accompany him on a day's excursion to Castle Acre. On our arrival, he noticed in the middle of the hall a newish visitor's book on a circular table, and curious to see who had been on shooting parties during the previous winter, he started quickly skimming through it. When he reached the last used page, he exclaimed in surprise and asked me to look. It carried the dates 1961 to 1971 and a single name, Slim, diagonally inscribed. Sir Kenneth's study was next to the library room and contained books, mostly sporting, that he had inherited from his father. My brief, once I'd done some measurements of the available space, was to buy the sort of sets, Smollett, Jane Austen, Gibbon, the Brontes and Thackeray, that you'd expect your guests to recognise, then add the equivalent names for the 20th century, Conrad, Kipling, War, Green, and a selection of P.G. Woodhouse. In terms of literature, we needn't include Proust, Henry James, or Virginia Woolf. 
Some mainstream biographies and books of military history were welcome, but nothing academic or left-wing. This would make an impressive mixture of old and new books combining leather with cloth. We were also asked for the future to send two or three books a month to ensure that his stock looked fresh. For the next 30 years I used to return regularly to check that all was well. In the latter period this usually meant a cull of 40 or 50 books, some of which were past their sell-by date, others which had been given by guests who didn't know their hosts' likes and dislikes. Sir Kenneth was always careful that guests never borrowed one of his books after their visit, but I never inquired how he checked their luggage. What I clearly remember about this first exercise to fill most of the shelves was the speed with which I finished the job, a matter of four or five weeks, and the amazingly low cost of £750. In the mid-80s, a journalist had written that no rich man could be thought cultured, or a gentleman, unless he owned 5,000 books. I don't remember this creating a book-buying boom, but the advice was heeded by Sir James Goldsmith, already a financial celebrity. He didn't want to do the buying of the books himself, and hired a semi-retired, well-read friend of mine, who in turn approached me. Characteristically, Goldsmith insisted that this should not be shown on an account in his name, wrongly suspecting that we might leak something to private eye. Also that we should refer to him as the principal in any relevant discussions. In terms of both sets and biographies, he had read widely in the 19th century, choosing Disraeli as his particular hero. He was our only customer for the full set of Disraeli's letters then being published by Toronto University Press. Greville's gossipy memoirs was another favourite, and I can recall a Bond Street party on an upper floor when our baronet host welcomed his guests at some length and I noticed his set of Greville in eight volumes behind him, as edited by Lytton Strachey and Roger Fulford, though most of the work was done by Francis Partridge. I could hardly wait for the speech to finish, but no one else had been similarly distracted, and my patience was rewarded. Once the principal had made his decisions, we shipped everything off to his house in Manhattan. Next time I went to New York, I invited myself to see them in situ, and very decent they looked. In complete contrast, one of Sir James's associates was then inspired to order a holiday library for his remote island retreat in the West Indies. Everything was to be in paperback, and with visitors in mind, we should cater for a wide range of different tastes. When we had enough for a worthwhile shipment, say five or six cartons, we should alert him to their expected date of arrival so that he could warn his housekeeper and the local boatman in good time. Haywood Hill's paperback stock was never more than a minority selection, so I resorted to our regular source, an East End wholesaler called Pipeline, and asked if I could come to their small warehouse and fill a trolley or three from their shelves. This was soon organised and, guided by my own ideas of enjoyable holiday reading, I spent a delightful two hours going through their entire inventory. The total tally came to 1,500 books, by which time my powers of selection were distinctly blunted. A couple of years later, the customer rang us to say that he now had read 200 or so of them and couldn't be more pleased. 
We can now return to our property man and his smart address in Belgravia. In the two years before the crash of 87, we had found ourselves particularly popular with our Anglophile customers in America because our currency was so weak and they could buy our antiquarian stock, which was always marked in sterling, at bargain prices, which we had neither the time nor the inclination to change. This provided me with a wider experience of the market for library sets and their sources, useful for clients like interior decorators who wanted jobs completed in a matter of a month. Urgency was not required for 100 Eaton Square, as our friend thought it would take him up to two years to move out of his present flat and into the new one. Over the next 20 months, I reckoned to deliver three or four cartons every six weeks, and by then the shelves looked almost full. It was therefore a shock to be told by the Portuguese maid that Mr. B was not moving in after all. I can't explain, she said. You had better talk to his secretary. Her explanation was simple, that the owner of the ground floor and basement, a well-known Middle Eastern merchant prince, wanted to enlarge his square footage and had made a huge, unrefusable offer. I was told that he had very much liked the look of the library and that if I played my cards right, I might be recruited to fill the shelves a second time. The interview was fixed and didn't last long. Although I had recommended that the longer I took, the better the books I could find, he wanted the job done in ten days. At the time, fortunately, we had a good run of colour plate books such as Ackerman's Microcosm and Pine's Royal Residences, but we needed to call on David Brass for a handsome set of Arabian Nights which exactly fitted one of the study shelves, and to scout around for the obvious books of Levantine Travel by Harold Philby, Wilfred Thesiger, and others. We got it filled in time, but I wouldn't volunteer to do the same nowadays, with so many fewer dealers. In an ideal world, the bookseller has an understanding of what books will give the greatest pleasure. He has to accept that there are very few lifetime readers or collectors who will find themselves with the problem of creating a library. Their problem is that they have too many books and not nearly enough space. Starting a library from scratch should involve a two-way learning process. Both sides need to know the priorities in terms of biography, history, fiction, sporting books or travel, and the scale and balance to be awarded to each category. One of the questions I asked earlier this year when I was handing over a current Everyman catalogue to be marked was Plato or P.G. Woodhouse, which? I was given a very clear answer, not necessarily what I expected. The Arab customer was always going to be a man in a hurry. Several years after I had helped him with his books in London, he built a large house in the country in which there was to be a library room. His decorator had been a Parisian and had provided dross of the lowest quality both for content and looks. When I had seen the house, I was asked to recommend what I would do to improve on this and I was summoned for another interview. He seemed pleased with the suggestions and by then I had bid for him at an auction or two and at least knew what he could be interested in. So I reminded him that he had given me ten days on the previous occasion might I now be granted a longer span? With a ghost of a smile, he set the limit at six weeks. So we lived with that 
and the dross was swiftly consigned to the squash court. Only on the last lap, when he cleared some shelves for fifty extra new books, did I fail to supply them in a day. He wanted them for a weekend party, and one of his staff was dispatched to the nearest Waterstones to make an indiscriminate selection of hardbacks. That was Neil Pearson reading John Somery Smith's Creating a Library, brought to your comfortable chair by The Book Collector. If you enjoyed this Book Collector podcast, you can find many more on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or via our website. You can subscribe to our journal at thebookcollector.co.uk for as little as £6 per month and get access to our complete digital archive. Visit thebookcollector.co.uk today.